Welcome to Verity Ed. In this episode, we are in the fifth mansions of St. Teresa of Avila's interior castle. Welcome back to Verity Ed, where parents are primary. We are in the Catholic mom section of Verity Ed, and videos in this series discuss specifically Catholic ideas and practices that have helped me to become a better homeschool mom. Because you can't live a great family life if you have no grounding in an interior life. For the first few videos in this series, which you really should watch first, please see the links below in the video description. Before we get going today, please hit the like button on this video and also the subscribe button if you are not already a subscriber and the notification bell. Thank you so much and let's get going into that fifth mansion. Hang on tight because now we are in the realm of deep mystery. Teresa continually emphasizes in this mansion both her certainty as to what she has seen and heard in these mansions and her inability to articulate it clearly. She calls the fifth mansions the place of the prayer of union, while in the fourth mansion the prayer of quiet or recollection is felt like a drowsiness in the body and may leave the soul wondering just what exactly happened those who have experienced the prayer of union in the fifth mansion first lose all contact with their bodies and even their imaginations for a moment or more, and they are left with no doubt that it was God dwelling in their souls. Indeed, certainty is the hallmark of these first spiritual mansions that we're in. I'm going to quote Teresa. I maintain that a soul which does not feel this assurance has not been united to God entirely, but only by one of its powers, or has received one of the many other favors God is accustomed to bestow on men. Peace that surpasses all worldly expectation remains. Complete contentment that God has visited the soul and promised to dwell there. So here in the fifth mansion, the soul is still removed even a little bit from the very presence of God in its center. This is not the end of its journey to God. And now I'm sitting here wondering like, wait, what? There's more? Teresa compares the prayer of union to the initial meeting of a man and woman even before they get engaged to be married. That's right, we're still having some progression to do here. The bride, which is the soul, whether you're male or female, that's your soul, has desired to be one with the man, God. She indicates her longing to be wholly his forever by submitting to his desire to see her. He enters her home and they meet for a very brief visit, perhaps one or two brief visits, which only increase her desire. So we did the prayer of recollection in the last mansion. What is the prayer of union? Well, Teresa compares it to the meeting of a man and woman even before they are engaged to be married. The bride-to-be, the soul, that's you, whether you're male or female, you're the bride, has desired to be one with the man, that is God. You indicate your longing to be wholly his forever by submitting and acknowledging his desire to be with you. He enters into your home and you meet for perhaps just a brief visit, maybe one or two brief visits, which only increases your desire to be one with him. 
This is only a preparation for his proposal and is not even close to what it will be in the coming marriage. The first thing to notice about this visitation from God is that it cannot be forced or called down by the soul. Teresa tells us to read the Song of Songs and to notice how the bride-to-be wanders the streets looking for her beloved. Only the beloved, however, can come and lead her into the wedding chamber. That being said, she urges us to prepare our souls in every possible way to be ready for when the bridegroom comes, like the ten wise virgins. He will come when he wills, and we can prepare only by dying to our own will. She writes, with the help of divine grace, true union can always be attained by forcing ourselves to renounce our own will and by following the will of God in all things. Perfect conformity with God's will does not mean that we will never feel sadness at the death or suffering of those around us or at bad things happening in the world. That would be at odds, in fact, with the sorrow Christ himself feels at sin and suffering and death. Rather, when we die to our own will, we become capable of perfect love of God and neighbor. Now, Teresa gets a little bit impatient here, and I love her dismissal of judging our obedience based on our own self-diagnosed love of God, or if we feel that we love God a lot. We are always, she said, uncertain as to how much we actually love God, and it is never enough. Do not evaluate your holiness based on how much you feel you love God, because you really have no idea. The love of neighbor, however, is something she says we can see, and love of neighbor is the only true indicator we have of our love for God, who is the source of our neighbor's existence. Love of neighbor is first of all seen in very little things, and I'll read her again. If you see a sick sister or brother whom you can relieve, never fear losing your devotion. Console her. If she is in pain, feel for it as if it were your own pain. And when there is need, fast so that she may eat, not so much for her sake as because you know our Lord asks it of you. This is the true union of our will with the will of God. She continues, if someone else is well spoken of, be more pleased than if it were yourself. This is easy enough, for if you were really humble, it would vex you to be praised. It is a great good to rejoice at your sister's virtues being known, and to feel as sorry for the fault you see in her as if it were yours, hiding it from the sight of others. These are truly difficult things to do, hiding others' faults as if they were your own and praising others as if they were ourselves. It's kind of backwards, right? And these are little deaths to our own will, and that is exactly how the soul comes to submit its will to God and prepare for divine union in the final mansion. Once again, the telltale effects of the fifth mansion are peace and desire to receive more suffering in the imitation of Christ. I'm going to read Teresa again. She says, No earthly events can trouble the soul unless it should see itself in danger of losing God or should witness any offense offered him. Neither sickness, poverty, nor the loss of anyone by death affect it, except that of persons useful to the church of God, for the soul realizes thoroughly that God's disposal is wiser than its own desires. The soul desires heaven to the point of being almost in constant pain, 
The thought of further and prolonged separation from its coming spouse is sorrowful, but it will gladly remain on earth as long as God asks, suffering for the sake of Christ and the salvation of other souls it loves. When the soul looks back on its previous life, those first, second, and third mansions, it hardly recognizes itself. Here comes the worm again. Teresa says, the soul was then like a little ugly brown worm. Yuck. But now it is a white, beautiful, translucent butterfly flying here and there in search of its bridegroom. Isn't that beautiful? So that is the end of the fifth mansion. We have two more to go. Please join us next time. If you have not subscribed yet, hit subscribe and the notification bell. And check us out on our website at worldwideweb.verityed.com for lots of resources on how to live out the life that you want in your home with your family. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much.